A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. You may be asking, is this a horror film? Well, it's based on a short story by Stephen King, and the movie has some blood, lots of talk about death, and features Corey Feldman with a gross ear. So yeah, <laughs> with me to discuss this classic film is Dr. Anthony Ladon. Did you ever have a canteen? And if so, why? <laughs> I absolutely had a canteen, and... I- I don't know why I loved it so much. <laughs> was but it like soft on the outside, like a little, little fabric? It was soft on the outside. Every time I took a sip out of it, it, it tasted like metal. It tasted like right. I was <laughs> yeah. drinking old metal. Yeah. And I, I just loved that thing. It never came in handy. <laughs> <laughs> it was always big. It was too big. And it would, I think it just hung on my bedpost for like 40 years or something like that. Yeah, I was trying to think of circumstances where I would be like without water for extended periods of time and glad I had a little suitcase full of it. Canteen is an interesting word because what else do you think of when you think of canteen? Uh, I think of, well, the cantina. Yeah, a Mexican-style restaurant or something. Or where there's all a wretched hive of villainy. Exactly. Sure. I kind of think I want to open up a cantina that serves drinks in canteens. In canteens. Why? Why is that not a thing? <laughs> yeah, they're like, they're like I love what you've done here. You've taken the bourbon, a little bit of uh, orange bitters. Is that fernet? I like how it tastes all like metal. <laughs> Will they be tiny little canteens, or am I just ordering like a jug of martini? You gotta just lug it around. <laughs> Everyone at the table gets a swig of martini out of the, out of the canteen, and sometimes you get the olive, and sometimes you don't. It's like a seven layer burrito. <laughs> All right, um, what's your history with Stand by Me? Uh, it's extensive. I think I saw it in the theater, and a good mutual friend of ours, Aaron Pendergraph, we watched this movie like two, three times a week for like a a couple summers i think really interesting yeah it was this it was goonies and we just watch it we just we just put it on you know and um 
and then there was a gap, right? I mean, it became one of those things where it's like, ah, I kind of like I can't watch the Christmas story anymore just because sure. it became yeah. such a thing that was part of your life. So revisiting it for this podcast was was a bit of a treat. And um, you know how like when you like revisit a a dessert or something like a like for, like my house would always have uh, chocolate zingers. Mm. and i can't tell you the last time i've had a chocolate zinger but i know exactly what it tastes like right? yeah sure and and it doesn't even matter if it is a subpar dessert by today's standards because it is the taste that it's only it would only be eaten for nostalgia now i don't know i'm not saying that stand by me is only viewable for nostalgia because i we'll, we'll get to whether or not it holds up as yeah. the podcast goes on but i mean this did feel a little bit like chocolate zinger mm -hmm. i'm in the mood for it um so i'm gonna forgive maybe some of the other if there's other qualities of it that maybe don't quite hold up mm -hmm. yeah so the boys sort of the main characters in this movie are 12 going on 13 and they're right on the cusp of that new life stage they're right on the cusp of really reorienting their life around girls so you were probably about that age when you enjoyed this movie yeah yeah so if this is 86 i'm about 10 yeah i probably saw it like when i was 11 ish we'll probably put it like in that range probably. sure and that that's usually the way it goes it's like if you're 10 you usually want to watch or listen to a story or something about someone who's like just a couple years older than you. Cause that's how you right. really feel deep down. Right. Yeah. And then you feel like this is attainable. So even though, you know, we were growing up, you know, this was probably late eighties for you. Right. Yeah. Uh, even though the story's about kids growing up in 1960s, Oregon, you know, we were of the age where it's like, Oh no, this is a story about us. This is a story. Yeah. I'm a character in this story. I could have been walking across that bridge with Verno and Gordy and the bunch. Yeah. Cause I mean, going on adventures and going on like, cause we were, we lived in a more country setting. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I, yeah. I would go on little, little journeys through the orchards and it always seemed much larger when you're young. Right. So like, you know, that's what, of course, the canteens would come in handy. Um, so you, you it might be ten minutes from the house. <laughs> so you, that's funny that you mentioned Aaron Pantograft on this because I remember cutting through some guy's orchard to get to his house once, mm. and um, the guy out on his porch, and I'm pretty sure he shot his gun into the air. Right, and of course, I ran directly for the fence. Aaron actually ran in zigzags. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this that is the, the presence of mind of that guy to run in a zigzag formation. I'm sure it just tickled the hell out of whoever shot that gun in the air. I'd be more tempted to shoot. But I, for me, I was like, I, so I got to the fence really, really fast. Because <laughs> I ran directly to Because Aaron's fence. creating a diversion. <laughs> I really did appreciate him doing that because going in zigzag, <laughs> if nothing else, I think the guy probably just doubled over laughing. It becomes a carnival game. You got to try to shoot him. <laughs> so it's funny that it, it's funny that you mentioned Aaron because, uh, you know, we we were friends with him at sort of different stages. Right. Uh, so I never watched Stand By Me with Aaron, but... Uh, but you lived it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Anyway, for me, Aaron was Chris Chambers in my life. Interesting. Yeah. And our friend Jeff always thought of 
Aaron as as Vern because right. he was overweight. Mm-hmm. But it, it, his personality, he absolutely was not Vern at all. Well, I would make an argument that he could be um, a little Vern. Like I remember we had a field trip in high school to I think it was Monterey, and uh, we were we were all getting you know we all got together on like I think it was bus or something right, and uh, he had a pair of galoshes uh, we're like what, what is that he's like mm, I, just in case and i guess mom made him bring the galoshes so like the running gag was that like he had galoshes for some reason and um and so to me the galoshes were the comb yeah sure bro. just in case right i bought a comb what do we need a comb for well if we get on tv we want to look good don't we it's a lot of thinking Vern. thanks too for flinching the, the wrong priorities. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so w- we were both watching this last night, and you texted me and said, this is kind of a horror movie without the horror. Mm-hmm. So uh, say a little bit more about that. Well, it's interesting. Like Some of the directing choices, too. Like when you go when, – when Gordy's reflecting on home mm-hmm. and – or we see the parents. Like, I mean, it feels like it's like that's a setting for a horror movie, right? They're – they're kind of catatonic. They're a little bit mm-hmm. silent. The way that it's filmed is very, uh, it's tense. Like just going to get the canteen and then, and then the things that the, the, the parents are saying, or it always, everything feels like it's teetering on. If this were a horror film, the horror, it's like, you can almost pick any scene. And that's funny that, yeah, cause I didn't realize it until you just said it, but those flashbacks to Gordy's house, it's a creepy house. Yeah. And his parents are acting like they're they're zombies, and it, it's just the whole thing is creepy. Yeah, the dream where he's where the father looks over and says, "You know, it should have been you." That way that he says it, everything it's it's like you expect something horrific to happen. Um, and so to me, that it's like almost the horror of puberty. It's the horror of neglect. It's this mm-hmm. the shroud of death over this whole film. I mean, the whole film is death is 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 it right? I mean, the, they're going to see yeah. a dead body. Like they they're going on a journey to encounter mortality. Right? Um, references to Teddy's father almost killing him. I mean, Teddy talks. I mean, we don't. Is Teddy going to kill himself on the on the bridge? And they talk about that so much. Absolutely. And I mean, we'll talk more about Teddy in just a little bit, but I feel like a lot of this plot is about proximity to death in the same way that we just covered uh, Pet Cemetery. Very similar. Right. Proximity to death. The difference here is we really don't have the parents' perspective on this. Right. And so what you have there is this parallel theme between proximity to death, like with an actual dead body and and Gordy's the loss of Gordy's brother, but parallel to that is you're also dealing with the proximity to the loss of childhood, right? Mm-hmm. So you're really you're on the cusp of adulthood uh, for these kids, and that and for that that's sort of a, it's both a step closer to mortality, but it's also something that's precious that's about life that is lost. And right. then on top of that, this whole thing is framed by Adult Gordy learns that his best friend Chris has been shot or knifed in yeah. an accident as an adult. Yeah, and I think there is something to be said for the the horrifying nature of of puberty and transition and and what you're you know this the unknown right and yeah. uh, 
it's a very i mean and, and there are moments where like there's just so much threat right i mean like ace threatens he's gonna kill chris chambers and you don't know if he's going to you know or if he would have right it because there was everything felt like that it was all the tension of a, a horror film like everything's like they're out in the woods and, mm-hmm. and they're alone and and you don't know like it, it could easily be played like that and so what was was interesting to me is that you know when you see horror movies that sort of devolve into certain tropes especially when they go to slasher and this is what we talked about too with pet cemetery about how it was so focused on the slasher moments that you really missed some of the internal horror I mean, you're moved in stand by me in a way that kind of conjures up some of those uneasy feelings that you would see in good horror yeah all the stuff that we wished we had seen in pet cemetery this movie hits those notes perfectly Right. And so you take the two together and like, let's say they go and they find Ray Brower's body. And instead of it being like a kid their age, it is a zombie three-year-old um, who knows how to dial the phone. Like <laughs> this movie's amazing now, right? You you mentioned uh, Ace. I had this written down as just one of the best parts of the movie. Kiefer, Kiefer Sutherland. Is that how we, how we say his name? Kiefer Sutherland? Well, that's how you're saying his name. <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland is amazing in this movie because he's so understated. He's so cool. Mm-hmm. Like, he never loses his cool. And that is more scary than anything because we've seen him almost put a cigarette into a kid's eyeball. Right. And you, when he pulls out that knife, you absolutely believe this guy's capable of anything. He right. Nothing faces this guy. I think that a lesser actor might have like played that character as crazy or over the top or anything like that. Just that really subtle coolness does so much for this character. Yeah, and I think you really nailed it too. Like he's he's legitimately scary, and he not over the top scary, but like you said, like like oh, I I don't know if I've ever encountered anybody like this, but I feel like I have because I've seen this film. <laughs> right. Well, it also helps that we also know him pretty well from Lost Boys, right? Right. So that's the other thing. If he had been a vampire and then there was an undead three-year-old, I mean, like, just match these movies up, forget about it. And the rest of these guys are kind of goofballs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they're going to do whatever he says, and they they can't control them themselves. They can't control their little brothers. They, they're just, they're nothing. They're nothing without Ace. Ace actually makes this film work. Yeah, I think Ace is really important. It's funny because, and I think when I was younger, I was so invested in the journey with the kids that I always felt like Ace was interrupting it, and it made it un- even that much more uncomfortable. And now looking back at it, it, like you realize how important it really was to have this other existential threat, because it was like they were, in a way, this this journey where they're looking for this dead body. They're actually away from their problems, like they're headed towards death, but they're all leaving like a worse situation in some way. Like they're together, yeah. You know, home home kind of sucks. Their brothers suck. All that, and you know, Vern still can't find his pennies. I mean, everything's. everything's all their parents suck in different ways. You know, Chris's right. dad is an alcoholic. Teddy's dad never really came home from the war, so he's abusing his child, motivated by PTSD. Right. And then, you've got, Gordy's dad who doesn't know he exists really. Yeah. Well, here's an interesting thing. This came up, and I, I talked a little bit about this with Heather watching this movie at the end. was like, this is interesting to see. This is told from adult Gordy's perspective. Yeah. 
through what he believes is young Gordy's eyes. He's a writer. It's interesting to see this story where, like, how much of this is is Gordy's interpretation of what his parents were like. Like, sure. were they were they really ca- so that because it was an interesting thing about when you would go to those scenes, like they were so catatonic, and he's the dad is just like doing the least amount of hoeing anyone could do to can be considered hoeing in a garden <laughs> and and the mom is just folding clothes right so like the idea that like yeah. was that really how they behave that seemed really weird like that's where the horror concept felt like it felt or is this top. is this his memory of a, a particular moment in their grief that just he could never shake he could never right shake. and so in his mind it was also like that was how he then saw them right like they might as well have been like, again, like the dream about, you know, should have been you. It's like, we don't know that that actually happened. That was it. Like, was he revisiting something that actually happened? Or is that just as far as he's concerned? That's what his parents believed. Hmm. And this whole film is really just an alternate universe where this would have been like if John Cusack had died. Wouldn't the world be a much different place if John Cusack I think so. I mean, died. I think we'd see it right there. You know, I've been thinking about John Cusack's mortality. <laughs> thinking a lot about John Cusack's mortality. <laughs> I've been thinking about there's no con air. I've been thinking about River Phoenix mm-hmm. and how the fact that he, you know, he dies when he's 23, overdose, and right. there's something about the parallel between him and this movie and. The knowledge that he doesn't, you know, he dies young. That's what happens. He dies young. Yeah, it certainly does frame this film experience differently, doesn't it? I mean, I think it so. absolutely I, I... does. It's not like I've seen River Phoenix in, you know, a Marvel movie or something like that. Right. Like, I, I mean, you're, he, it's interesting because he was, and I think, especially given our experience with that and our age, I mean, you could make a bit of a parallel to this film for a lot of us because river phoenix was kind of on the up as an actor yeah he was and and then he died at such a young age and we were not that far behind so you look at that same sort of like hey we viewed this movie like as 10 year olds watching these 13 year olds and then river phoenix dies at a young age and we're kind of like now it's if there's an interesting sense of mortality there we don't know this guy we have a parasocial relationship with him you know via tv and movie but then it just was so interesting to see that's really young and we were young enough to kind of grasp that. So I think that also changes how you look at this film for our generation. Absolutely. I think there's, and also um, if I may, uh, hopefully my wife doesn't mind, but like I, there was an interesting point where Heather like kind of paused the film because River Phoenix had a fat ass. <laughs> she was, a, I think this, she was I'm assuming this is a compliment. I don't know. I'm not sure. But it was something along the lines of like, hey, you know, uh, Vern's supposed to be the real overweight one. But like she was kind of pointing out there was a certain doughiness to River Phoenix. Uh, maybe she was calling out Hollywood's hypocrisy for, for body images or whatever. Or it was just the right time to say that uh, River Phoenix had a fat ass. I can only love him more. because of that. <laughs> he's, he's filling out those 501s. Uh, I think that we've talked about this a little bit, but already, but who's this film made for? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, uh, well, it's, that's, it's, I think it's made for anybody that has been this age um, will be this age. I think that's Mm kind of what you got, right? I mean, it is, it, it's such a uh, iconic, 
coming of age story, right? Like if you were to ask people about coming of age stories, I think a lot of folks uh, of many generations would refer to Stand By Me because it I, is... I do think it's timeless. I, I feel like I enjoyed it just as much a, as an adult as as I did when I was you know, 11 years old. The 80s had an interesting um, reverence for nostalgia. And I think so. I mean, I, and I think it happens in every generation, but there was a reverence towards the 50s and 60s in a way that we as children of the 80s and 90s don't maybe have that same reverence we we have sort of a uh almost a satirical nod to the 80s like we look at the 80s we paint with some broad brushes i think and they and they can be paid oh it's all laughable it's all laughable i mean and we were kind of cartoons we we dressed like cartoons Right, but it's interesting that we just don't have that same, I mean, there's a loyalty to the memory, but not to mm-hmm. the, like I said, that reverence isn't there. Like, so, right. so, I, it's, so, and I think that's one of the reasons why it holds up is because I think we've just culturally taken that time frame because it is, it feels, it is a little bit like a period piece. So if the language is weird or the, you know, the references are, are dated, it's like, well, that's fine because it is clearly this time. But yeah. it's not so far in the past that you can't relate to it or make the connections to what they're trying to do, right? I mean, like they're interested in a little bit of, you know, music and TV and... Right. They're all connected to pop culture. They all have kind of this small town rumors and lore and legends, you know, like there's, you know, they've heard through the rumor mill that some kid's gone missing or... They've heard about Chopper, this this monstrous dog. Uh, they've heard the lore about how the owner has trained Chopper to sick balls, and all of that's very universal. But I was thinking, like, I think that as a parent, I would probably be happy to show this to either my son or my daughter. Mm-hmm. But on rewatch, I'm realizing the almost complete lack of female representation in the movie, and I'm wondering, like. That's something my daughter kind of really cares about. Like, I wonder yeah, if I wonder if she would enjoy this as much as my son ha- has enjoyed it. Mm. Um, and it's probably something I wouldn't have even thought of right. know, 15, 20 years ago. Well, I think, too, looking back and talking about, like, how they behave, like, you know, they've got they've got cigarettes. Um, they get a gun. I mean, everything is the way that they talk and the way that they view the world. Like, there's so much discussion of war and and Mm -hmm. um this is kind of before kids had an opportunity to have like a child's voice like our kids and i think and i mean they they have an opportunity to express themselves they have like these kids can only do it like almost mimicry right like it's Mm -hmm. this is what adults this i i know i this these are the shows that i'm allowed to watch and it's probably whatever my parents are watching there's no i mean there's like the mickey mouse club but i mean there's not a bunch else on right so sure. I mean, it's just it's it's an interesting uh glimpse and what i love about it is like the mickey mouse club is this wholesome thing that but the kids you know because they're getting of that age they're they, they turn it into something you know a little more scandalous i Cause that's because that's all yes. they have access to right so like they're like hey you know and i i'm gonna find lewd wherever i can find it sure i feel like like their conversations feel very authentic to me. Like they're going, they're vacillating between talking about storming the beach at Normandy to what the hell is goofy? Mm-hmm. You know, it reminds you that they're right on the cusp, right? They can sort of play a little bit with childhood still and they can, but they can also carry around a gun. Yeah. There was a moment for me 
when I felt like Gordy was talking a lot like an adult. And I thought, well, this is this kind of works for this movie because is this Richard Dreyfus's voice? Mm. Like, this is how adult Richard Dreyfus would have told off Ace. Right. You know, when he's pointing the gun at him. He calls him what? He calls him some sort of, like, two-bit dime store uh, hood or something yeah. like that. Come on, kid. Just give me the gun before you take your foot off. You ain't got the sack to shoot a woodchuck. Move, Ace. You, I swear to God. Come on, Lachance, give me the gun. You must have at least some of your brother's good sense. Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. And it's like, is that, is that something that uh, he would have said in the moment, or is that sort of? Retrospective as yeah, this is this is this is the maybe unreliable narrator. Sure, sure, sure. And then at the same time, you've then you've got the reality that all these kids have been forced to grow up pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the most childish one among them is Vern. He's the only one that doesn't have a an abusive parent, really. Right. And and so you totally get that Chris Chambers is talking like an adult because. He's had to grow up really, really fast, and and he's been disillusioned by adults, and his dad's a drunk, and you know all of that business, and yet somehow this has sort of infused him with an earned wisdom instead of turned him into an over the top crazy person like Teddy, right? Um, and I and all that seems very believable to me. Yeah, Heather actually really liked the the dime store, a two bit dime store hood line and she made a comment she's like it just felt like that's probably what he's heard his friends sure. called by his parents sure right and so he got to an opportunity to use it right and and as i mean i think it, it's i was really you know we're just going into a whole new discussion a little bit but like i was really imp impressed at how well this held up yeah no no does this hold up i think it absolutely holds up we were talking about who this movie's for. It overlaps a little bit here because a lot of f bombs, mm -hmm. a lot of pussies, yeah, a lot of retard. Right. You know? I wonder if a modern writer would try to sanitize that a little bit to make it still feel authentic, but then not create those kind of triggers for people. Yeah, perhaps. And and but I yeah, and that's one of the things I remember really feeling so attached to it at a young age was because it was like i could see it but it was r and um oh is this rated r yeah because of the amount of the f word probably yeah yeah and so wow. it's um it's and so it was it was what i liked about that is like you got i think for me it was a kid i'm like well i'll talk like that you know whether i know what it all means or how to construct it cleverly is not the <laughs> issue the issue is if i'm gonna be out away i'm going to talk like that and i liked that i felt like it felt validating i think as a kid to be like okay look it's this is how we are you know my my parents were probably this way if i'm buying this movie in the time frame you know it's funny because there's so much about this movie that is just about nostalgic innocence e even though it's framed in a very adult subject um, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe maybe Stephen King is sort of reminding us that death is not an adult subject. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the ki- the children experience death and grieve, and but there is a sense in which this movie feels very innocent. Um, right. Well, and and I, you know, I think our generation, the generation before, would have seen this as an incongruous statement to say that. Well, with the way that they're talking and behaving, that there's innocence. It's like, well, that's. I don't think that those two have to be mutually exclusive, right? Because I think even even the foul language and some of the sexual discussions, that's part of the innocence, right? I mean, that's... It is part of the innocence because what what are they talking about when they're talking about sex? They're talking about a girl's boobs. From the Mickey Mouse Club. From the Mickey Mouse Club. <laughs> and and uh, the conversations we were having at that age were not nearly as PG. For sure. Um, yeah, so I think that's all part of it, right? It's the it's the growth into uh, like in your experimenting, like the idea of like you know you're experimenting with the cigarettes, you're experimenting with the language, you're experimenting with just discussing sex because you don't know how to do any of that very well, and if you don't have role models demonstrating it outside of like maybe media or people that you know big brothers that are also figuring it out at a at a different um, you know a different pace. Um, you just, this is what it looks like. It's like a jazz odyssey of becoming an adult. And this is the first time I've, and I've seen this thing probably dozens upon dozens of times. First time I've ever noticed Corey Feldman's ear. Right. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's because maybe it was always on VHS on like lousy TV. So I noticed that this time, I think I might've noticed it before. So I just seen it recently, and I thought, you know, I what I'd like to do this time around is so I appreciate it differently. I'm gonna read the body, so I'm gonna mm. read the novella by Stephen King. So I did that. So I read that last week. Surprisingly similar, like very, mm. very similar. I mean, there's a, there's a few exceptions, but it, you really feel like, oh no, this is this this could actually be a a book adaptation of the movie. The way that this is written. Okay. Um, but I did appreciate the, all of those details more, like the ear thing. Because mm-hmm. I, you know, I'd seen it on the page. And so I was looking for things like that in the film. Got it. A couple of little differences between the film and the movie. Um, the the, the lardass scene is not mm-hmm. in the oh. book. Oh, okay. He tell he does tell a story around the campfire, but it's, there's no vivid description of the story. And then at the end, it's really important, I think, in the movie that that Gordy holds the gun because he's the one who's the closest to death. Right, his his mm. brother died. He he's got a fascination with death. He wants to see the body. He's pushing everyone forward. He thinks this is not fun. This should be serious. Right. He's really struggling with death, and I think it's important that he holds the gun. In the book, Chris Chambers holds the gun. Mm, So he pulls out the gun. He has that whole encounter with Ace. And it works in the book because you do kind of feel that Chris Chambers is the adult of the group. Right, and he's kind of the self He's the guardian, and we've seen it. He's the guardian, and it's his dad's gun. You know, it makes sense. It makes sense in the book. But for the movie, I do feel like I, I think it works a lot better. I agree because I think I like the idea that Gordy assumes that role, and I think the reason why it's great that he assumes the role right then is because he has a moment of closure with death, like yes. he encounters it, like in a way that is 
like it's it's someone his age and in many ways if he's got it in his mind that his parents would rather that he had been the one that died he's like well this is what it would have been like this is it you know so he kind of it's it's the you know yeah he's he says it should have been me so he feels like it could be it could be that i it'd be better if i was dead so i think that if you look at the film he pulls the gun because this is that this is sort of that metaphorical transition he's now he, he's taken a big step towards adulthood whether he's liked right. it or not and it, and, right. and, it, and I, oddly enough it's through death right so through death he walks through the door and now he can be death to this person if he needs to be yeah so, that's and, right. so i think i think the and i think ace sees that right like ace doesn't it kind of initially treats him like he might be just a kid with a gun and mm-hmm. that makes it dangerous but then i think as he gets closer there's this there's something that is clearly different in the way that gordy communicates that suggests uh that i'll pull up all this trigger and he become in in, a, in, a, in it's in a, a slight tragic move he becomes a little more like ace right um, or at least well yeah because he's he's holding you know it's we were, we were talking about how this film's about the proximity to death i mean you could say that holding that gun in your hand you're holding you, you, that's that as close of a proximity as you're going to get you're holding an instrument of death in your hand right and you're on the other side of and it and you're on right? the other side of it and here we have gordy who's been totally powerless and now he in a way that a twelve-year-old feels like he might be empowered, right? He's he's been held hostage by a death, right? And now he, I mean, in you know, he's at that moment he now has the the ability. Yeah, he gets to, to be the mediator. That. He gets to yeah. be the 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 mediator to the other side. And at the same time, he's also protecting the dead body. And the dead body, I think, for Gordy represents maybe an experience to grieve his brother in a way he hasn't before. He, you know, he talks about how I didn't, I didn't cry at my brother's funeral. I don't think his parents have given him space to grieve because his parents don't know how to grieve. And he's he's sitting there looking at the dead body and saying, why did you have to die? And I think he's probably talking to his brother. Sure. Right. But in this moment, he's in charge. Yeah, and the and the idea too that like when he's like you said he he leaves the body he says hey we're not gonna we're not gonna essentially we're not gonna exploit this kid's death because he's already kind of seen what death does when it's mishandled hmm. Hmm. right and so there's a respect to the to the to the you know hey we came here because we wanted we we, we were treating death as if it was like going to the fair like he want to see something you know at the sideshow. Uh, and then realizing, no, this is this is what I'm dealing with. This is not, this is not a prop. This is not a, it's not a sideshow. This death is a big deal. So you're talking about the difference between the book and the movie. Uh, this pie eating contest, that's I guess a movie only feature. Mm-hmm. Does this does this work for you? It's a it's a very different tone than the rest of the movie. Yeah. So it, as a kid, it was one of my favorites. Right, loved it. Love the scene because I just think throwing up is one of the funniest things to watch. <laughs> I, and I don't know if it's because of this movie, but I th- man, if if I I will watch a friend throw up <laughs> and giggle with glee. All right, I have a much different experience with throw up, but I feel like as a kid, I felt a little bit scandalized by this story. I remember <laughs> thinking, like, I don't get it. He made himself throw up. 
on the off chance that someone else was going to see it and throw up. This is not a good plan. Like well, he, like you're doing it to yourself. This is not going to this is not going to work. And of course, you know, I, I I probably was not thinking through the the purpose of the story, um, right? Or the way that the story functions in this. The, the story context. is a story. It's not like it's uh, he's recounting a tale. But I, I was a little bit like Teddy. You know, at the end of it, Teddy was like, "All right, what comes next?" Right. <laughs> well, I love so that's that that is, and I appreciated that sequence more the like the end of it because I mean Teddy. I mean, we just get another glimpse into to. Well, who Teddy is. Yeah. And, how does and he how want the damage. story to end? Teddy wants it to end. Can he just go home and shoot his father and, and then, like, join the Texas Rangers? <laughs> Lardass after after making the entire town essentially throw up and getting his revenge is like, mm, no, there's one more thing I could do. I did this fun little prank with vomit. I'm going to go murder my dad. <laughs> and then That'll join, seal join the Texas Rangers? Which apparently they don't do a lot of background checks at uh, Texas Rangers. Total. <laughs> Barforama. Oh man, that was the best. Just the best. That would happen. What do you mean? I mean, what happened? What do you mean what happened? That's the end. How can that be the end? What kind of an ending is that? What happened to Lardass? I don't know. Um... Maybe he went home and celebrated with a couple of cheeseburgers. Jeez, that ending sucks. Why don't you make it so that so that Lardis goes home and he shoots his father, then he runs away and and he joins the Texas Rangers? How about that? Uh, I don't know. Something good like that. So this is his like he loves his dad, right? He wants to defend his dad, even though his dad has held his well, he his loves ear his dad. To a burner. He loves his dad almost like a hostage would love his captor. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, but you kind of see it in that little moment. It's like, yeah, you love your dad. You actually are fantasizing about murdering him. Well, and, that's, and I think that that's why that scene is so great because it's like, well, if you're going to tell me a story where somebody who's down gets uh-huh. a chance to be up, yeah, it, it better end really good, and that would be killing my dad. <laughs> and so, <laughs> but then, and what I love, but Vern's response, oh my God. It's like there's one thing I didn't get. <laughs> Did he have to pay? Because I, and I don't know why paying to be in the pie contest is such a big deal. Is it? Is it? <laughs> is it? Is it because he's like, well, you just threw up all that pie that you paid for? Is it? Okay, he's still here's just. Why. Here's it's why. all about the pennies. We have yes, it's a running penny theme. Yeah, because he's thinking, I that's me. I I could do this. But damn but, it, if I had, but, but if I, I gotta find I, my penny jar first. But if I'm sitting there, <laughs> I gotta dig more holes just to get into this pie content. <laughs> All right. So I, the other thing, when I was a kid, I thought, what are the rules of this pie eating contest? Because it yeah, looks because, yeah. like <laughs> they take three bites, move the crust around a little bit with their nose, and just shout "done." Yeah, no, I've never actually it. seen a pie eating contest. There's got to be better rules than this, right? I've been in one, and you got to get all that crust. You don't get oh, to just... You better... All right, let's pause here. You've been in a pie-eating contest. Yes, with Matt Curtis, I feel like you're, you're about... It's like equivalent to you telling me you were in a kissing booth at one point. <laughs> Did you go on the tunnel of love? There's, there's, there's nothing that sounds more old-timey than to say yeah. that you were in a pie-eating contest with Matt Curtis. 
Yeah, it was like, I think it was at a UC Davis, like, you know, family, like, hey, everyone visit the campus. And then I don't know how exactly we got into it, but it was, and I remember there was some, I think there was some tomfoolery between us, like pushing the the pie thing away when I was doing really well. <laughs> so you're telling me that you were sort of a pie eating prodigy. Because I don't think the, that you I'm probably sure had a lot of memory. practice here. No, and I'm sure his his memory is probably the other way around. I mean, this is this is <laughs> we're both Richard Dreyfus probably in this story. <laughs> All right, so you're saying that you you almost won, but you didn't because of his tomfoolery. That's what I think, and it, it could very well have been the other way around. Because I don't even know which if I was telling the story, like trying to remember it correctly, I'm like, or if I was going to go ahead and embellish. I don't know if I would rather be the one that was really good at eating pie and had to have someone step in, or if I'd be the the jerk that would push the pie thing away. Wow, I I had no idea. I had no idea this was part of your life. Mm, yeah. Wow. Yeah, but you don't get away with leaving those edges. We'll just put it that way. Three bites, three bites, and you just shout done, and yeah. they move right on there. Yeah, I guess it's all about how much pie is on your face. The more pie that's on your face, the more that they'll believe that you're done. Uh, did you remember that it was John Cusack? I did not. And were you surprised when you saw John Cusack? I did have a little bit of like, oh, Cusack's in this. It's one of these really sort of, because he's not in many, you know, what is he in? Like maybe two minutes of the movie. Right. At, at the most. And you're thinking... Wow, Sutherland! Wow, Kiefer Sutherland! Wow, that's that's impressive. And then when Cusack shows up, you're like, he's perfect. This guy's perfect for this role. This, my friend, is for you. This is your Yankee cap. No, no, no. This is your Yankee cap. It's good luck cap. You wear that cap. You know how many fish we're gonna catch? How much? Brazilian, Brazilian fish. And it looks good on you too, just like that. Hey, move! Go on, point. Hey, don't start with me, porcupine. Come here, come here, give me a hug. You yeah. totally believe that they're brothers, and he's like, of, of course, he's the perfect older brother because it's his memory exactly of the older yes. brother. He's not going to remember all the times that his older brother ignored him, right? And so huggy, and he's so mm-hmm. you know so encouraging because he's that's the memory, and that's then that really helped I think frame why I was able to see those parent moments as like being more horrific and like over the top, and I'm like, well, well now it makes sense because we are going through the memory. Of even like even though we're seeing his memory of his brother in the film, the film is also a memory, right? And and I yeah, think it's that totally that's... tinged with golden, you know, nostalgia, right? And I think it's cool too that like I mean, because because Cusack, I mean, at the time Cusack was still Cusack, but like it doesn't take away from the film that there's another recognizable actor because I think what it helps it helps you to remember Denny now throughout the movie because now you've got a a, a face that you personally i associate positively so um hmm. the the loss of of john cusack uh matters to me hmm. oh wait a second he's not dead is he in real life in real life well i mean here's the thing this podcast i like to think is going to be real popular for years as of now as of the recording he is alive but there are going to be some people that are going to be we're listening to this years from now, and they're going to be like, oh, man, Cusack, 20 years he's been gone. I mean, I don't know how long people are going to be listening to this podcast, but I like to think it's going to be probably 40, 50 years from now. Does this movie have a half the battle, one to grow on moment? I think, I, 
I mean, it feels like there's a there's a few, right? I mean, it, it, if if anything, it it feels like when it's it's over, and they all just sort of leave. Yeah, it's so uh, interesting to me. It's like not that, just the end of that adventure; it's really the end of their friendship. Yeah, the friendship ending, sort of the, the end of of this point of their lives, right? Yeah, and and like I, you know, you sort of take away from it what you will, right? I mean, obviously, him and Chris. Gordy and Chris are, are more in touch as as they are older, and and there is something I felt like I kind of took this, you know, almost like just cherish the moment you've got. Right? If I was going to take something away from it, right, which is well, obviously with the death theme, right. I mean, there's there's this idea that you know almost take nothing for granted, you know, whether it's good friends, whether it's it's close family, um, or just experiences, right. That's like a takeaway. I think that's a takeaway I got when I was younger, and I still kind of felt a little bit of that. There's this one line in the movie. There's a couple of lines that I really sort of think encapsulate the movie. But one of the lines is that there are certain friends that just kind of are there for a certain stage of your life. And they move on like a waiter at a restaurant. Yeah. And it's just that's just so true. There's That is absolutely a life lesson. You know, in this moment, no one could be a better friend. You know, this is your best friend in this moment. And it could be that three years from now, you're, you give them a little nod in the hallway. And that's as much as you have in common with that person. The other thing that, that was interesting to me was there's the shop owner. And he doesn't have a lot of lines, but he's asking Gordy, like, do you play football and all that business? Mm-hmm. And he says this one line, he says, in the midst of life, we are in death. But he frames it like this. He says, do you know that in the Bible, it says, in the midst of life, we are in death. And I thought, that's perfect. That was not in the book. But I really feel like that encapsulates so many themes in Stephen King's works. Right. Like, you're alive. You're alive, but you are right on the doorstep of death all of the time. Yep. It surrounds you. And so I thought, that's really interesting that Reiner decided to put that in there because... Or the screenplay writer, whoever decided to put that in there. It's not in Stephen King's book, but it totally, in a nutshell, captures a major theme from King. Well, so, and I think that we talked about Pet Cemetery, how like yeah. it's, it's an adaptation almost more visually than it is thematic. It misses some of the psychological horror, some of the right. the, the turbulence that goes on in in one's mind when, when they're dealing with loss. And so it, it, it translates this like horror book horror movie there is killing here is killing this is gruesome this you know and and that's all it does it's a very like it's a thin veneer of trying to understand well, also it with that it sort of is a, it's in a slasher flick at that point and so right. it's, it's there basically the genre will trivialize the death whereas a movie like this the death is actually more poignant because it's not trivialized Right. And, and like, and you said, I mean, okay, they maybe made some tweaks to the story, but that's pretty true to it. But, but that line that you mentioned shows that these filmmakers, they get the work. They totally they get it. What, and what the other thing about. that, yeah, the other thing I've, I noted about it is I thought, I don't remember that verse from the Bible and I'm a <laughs> study this quite a lot. So I looked it up. It's, it's not from the Bible. It's from the book of common prayer, mm. which is a book that you would find in a church. So close enough. Right. Got it. But I thought it was kind of great that the shop owner 
associates it with the Bible. Right. For me, it was sort of the same way that Tarantino has Jules misquote Ezekiel twenty five seventeen. Right. Like he knows what he's doing. He can go look it up. But this is done on purpose. It's like for Pulp Fiction, Jules is actually paying homage to this misquotation in a, like a Sonny Chiba film mm-hmm. where that verse is quoted and misquoted. And I think that brings a certain level of authenticity to this film because, you know, it's exactly the kind of thing that you're going to misquote. You know, you're, th- this shop owner is not going to know the difference between a, a verse he heard at a funeral between the Book of Common Prayer or the verse he heard from a sermon in the Bible or whatever. So sometimes those little discrepancies, those little errors, bring a level of authenticity to the film. Well, I'll tell you right now, it, it totally did for me just in this conversation because I didn't, I mean, I liked that scene and I liked everything, but the, that quoting one, it felt a little, at first I was like, is this, is this just us dropping in like the, the screenwriter or the director dropping in a, another way to frame this film, which I think is still nice and it works, Yeah. but knowing that it was kind of an intentional uh, misquoting to make it more authentic makes it, makes it like totally work even better now. I think so. I, I, I love it. I don't even care if it was a mistake. I feel like mm-hmm. the mistake, whether it's the actor's mistake or it's the writer's mistake, I feel like that works. Life is full of those kinds of mistakes. There's a, the other line in there that really got me, too. It's just a, when he asks, like, do you play football? And he's like, no. And he's like, well, what do you do? You play football. Hmm? You play football. What do you do? I don't know. Yeah, well, your brother, Denny Shaw, can play football. And there was just, he didn't have really an answer. He's like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, and and I love, I love that idea of the pressure we put on kids a lot of times. Like, well, what's your identity then? It's like, yeah. Um, I, I probably still wet the bed a little bit. Well, also, he knows he's a writer, right? He knows he's a storyteller, and yet he's still viewing that through his parents' eyes. Like, this is not valuable. This is a total waste of time. Chris Chambers is there to say, no, this is a gift. And Gordy still at that stage was like, yeah, but it's not like being a quarterback. It's like, this is just something I do for fun. So he's very uncomfortable with the fact that he's not his brother. Right. And that's to- and that in that scene in the shop brings that out. It's like, yeah, your your brother was a really good football player. It's the it's he's being like so. We're talking about this. Is this a horror film? Sure. And he's being haunted by the ghost of his brother. Yeah. Everywhere he goes. Yeah, that's right. Everyone in the town, even Ace knows. Even right. and- Ace says, "You must have some of the good sense of your brother." In the book, that's what triggers him. That's thinking, you know, you should not have brought up my brother. I'm gonna get this goddamn gun. Mm. Um, is this movie better, worse, or on par with a Ron Howard flick? It's a Ron Howard plus two. Uh, interesting. I was gonna. I was think. I was thinking with properly Howard. Right, and I. I was too, but I think that because I think that I. I feel like Ron Howard sanitizes it maybe, or misses some of these darker, you know, moments. 
I kind of feel like I'm looking back on this movie. This is almost the perfect movie. Mm, I agree. And I feel like with Ron Howard, it's going to be a good movie. But it's not going to be a perfect movie. There's going to be a few notes here that ring a little bit false to just remind you, oh, yeah, it's a Ron Howard movie. Yeah, I would, and I agree. And I think that's where I give the, I give it, I was thinking properly, then I was going plus one, but I went plus two because I think that the movie's, I think it's two better. And it means nothing because it's already. <laughs> of course, because I settled on Ron Howard plus one, and then I just call it the perfect movie. So. <laughs> That's how meaningless this is. Yeah, especially because you're like, hey, this is the perfect movie. So Ron Howard is just one degree away from perfect movies. <laughs> no, I feel like for what it is, right? You right. know, it's like, um, like we haven't watched The Goonies yet. We probably will watch The Goonies. But I kind of feel like this is the film that The Goonies is trying to emulate, right? Well, I think you see that a lot, right? I mean, um, Monster Squad. Is just stand by me with uh, with Frankenstein. Still haven't seen Monster Squad. Well, we're gonna get there. I, I think that to me, this is this whole podcast still is just an opportunity to to talk about Monster Squad with you. <laughs> Much in the same way you wanted me to watch Game of Thrones, so uh-huh. we can have a conversation about Game of Thrones. I just want you to watch Monster Squad. <laughs> After watching this, did you appreciate any scenes in Stranger Things differently? Um, it, it just really just sort of uh, confirmed that which I kind of already knew. Like, I mean, there's so much about the construction of those four, yeah, and the construction of these four. I mean, you don't necessarily have the um, like the Teddy type character, right? I mean, that's well, you do have. I love that Lucas at times will like say, "Here's my knife. It's from Nam. Here's this. Yeah, yeah, Here's yeah. my canteen. Yeah. It's from Nam." You know, you yeah, really do that, get that yeah. sense with with Lucas that. He really has this reverence for the previous war, you know, the war that happened about yeah. a decade ago. Well, it's funny, too, because it's like I look at this and go, this is like Stand By Me. There's the forum, but you never really see Will. I'm like, oh, so this is more like The Hangover. You know, that's yeah, it's, it's funny that you say that because it's like, you know, Gordy's sort of the main character of this film. He's the most artsy and thoughtful. And he's also has this sort of innocence of spirit. And mm. when we see Will Byers um, disappear, it's like, oh, no, we lost Gordy. Right. Gordy is what made this whole thing work. So the junkyard scene, I think you have a couple direct homages. Right, where they're all at the bus and all that. Uh-huh. One last little book difference here, Steve. There's no reference to the Goocher. Is that right? No, in the book, there's no reference to the... There is sort of the... They all got tails. And this was viewed as a bad sign, but that famous line by Vern, not in the book. Sincerely. Sincerely. That's still one of my favorite parts, is like the, just how often he says sincerely. <laughs> and he can't really say it. Yeah. No, Jerry O'Connell is amazing in this movie. I, I really underappreciated. I couldn't yeah. even remember his name. I know that I've seen you in a million things. I know that you were Cush in Jerry Maguire. Mm-hmm. I don't know your. I didn't know this actor's name, and of course Jerry O'Connell. Yeah, he. This actor has the best lines. He has most of the funny lines in this film, and he delivers them well, for lack of a better term, sincerely. Steve, this is from 
Tina in Columbus, so not too far from me. Tina asks, did either of you resolve to do anything for your New Year's? In other words, do you have New Year's resolutions, I think she means. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and if not, maybe you could come up with something on the fly for me. Hmm. Okay. Did you have any resolutions? Are you a resolution guy? Sometimes I am. And this year I had zero resolutions. Yeah, I think I was kind of in the mind that um, until we are like clear of the world ending, um, <laughs> maybe maybe I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and put anything mm-hmm. else on hold, right? Especially when it comes to self-care. Yeah. I mean, at this point, it's like, what am I getting in shape for? The open casket? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think – What did you have one last year? Uh, it was probably related to weight. And this year, it's I, I mean, if I was going to come up with one on the fly, it would be like, I need to just make a decision. I'm either going to try to lose weight or I'm going to need to start growing facial hair. <laughs> um, I Last year, it was learn Italian. I was messing around with Duolingo. Mm. And I thought, you know, I've been I've done all these other languages and I feel like I am Italian. So maybe that gives me maybe I don't have to learn it. You know, it's sort of like if you're the son of a pianist, you're probably not going to need to learn the piano because it's always kind of there. <laughs> or maybe you don't want to learn the piano or whatever. Uh, I was a little bit that way with Italian. And finally, I thought, you know what? When this whole thing is over, I probably want to visit Italy again. And I might as well learn Italian. And I did. I, I learned a little bit. I, I was having a lot of fun with it for about six weeks. And then <laughs> I just stare at that app on my phone and think, hmm, it's kind of a bummer that I didn't keep that up. So you, um, you're, you're six weeks worth of Italian. Uh-huh. And you feel like you've still hung on to that? No, but if I picked it up, I would. I probably could speak. You feel like you've got like first... five weeks in. Yeah, yeah. I would. <laughs> it would. I could probably speed food, speed through the first three weeks mm. or so. Well, you're not doing great with English right now, but so I'm, I'm, like I, I said, hope for your Italian. It's like I said, I grew up speaking English, so I felt like I didn't really have to learn it. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, so I think I might do that. I mean, because I I really enjoyed it, and I feel like maybe I'm already halfway there so yeah anyway what uh, what, what about you? you you anything that strikes your fancy well um well let's see i got covid to start the year so that was kind of like nice to get that out of the way as far as resolutions go mm-hmm. no i mean self-care seems like a luxury that i don't i can't afford these days um lotions too expensive lotions too yeah i mean that's the thing i mean i i don't know about you but like I don't think my hands are good. <laughs> you don't. You don't. You, no, the honeymoon I, is over. The honeymoon well, is over. It's weird, Steve right? And like, his hands. It's weird because I think my my palms are soft. That give sort of the illusion of health. But like, I've always had old man back of hands. <laughs> like, I would never be a hand model unless the uh, it was like for a like a, a life alert bracelet or something. <laughs> Like, if you needed to give the illusion that your product helps old people, like, be more nimble or whatever, like, they would look at my hands and go, well, look at, look what that old guy's doing with it. I mean, <laughs> he's got great dexterity. And the reality was, it was like, oh, it was, it was a 17-year-old who just 
has been cursed with this affliction of he's got Benjamin Button hands. There are worse things that you could say about a person. Benjamin Button hands <laughs> is, is not the worst insult that you could. <laughs> Can't the idea that like when I die, I'm going to be shriveled up and my hands are going to be little baby hands. <laughs> I think that at your funeral, when we're, <laughs> when we're celebrating your life, it, it, it won't be the first thing we say. It won't be the last. But at one point, someone will say, and by the way, he had Benjamin Button hands. <laughs> and people will kind of nod thoughtfully. They won't be shocked. <laughs> like, oh, oh, okay, yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> At the convalescent hospital, he was just called old baby hands. <laughs> All right. I actually wanted to read a review from Perfect Stranger Things uh, this week because I just enjoyed this review. All right. Uh, so, uh, you know, Cousin Podcast, Perfect Stranger Things, where we cover Stranger Things. This was written by SSL20. Funny and insightful. Didn't plan on enjoying this podcast enough to subscribe. But after the Captain's Hat reference, had to. Love all the pop culture references and insights into teenagers and teenage years. So this is, I think, probably in reference to when I wore a captain's hat in fourth grade and and really sort of instigated the breakup between me and my fourth grade girlfriend. <laughs> That'll do it. So I, I'm glad, SSL20, I'm glad that my childhood trauma has brought you joy. Yeah, you, you can, maybe you were ahead of your time. I just like to think that you live outside of time when you decided <laughs> in fourth grade to don a captain's hat. I went in back in time. Like Biff in Back to the Future 2. And, and I you said, got the wrong almanac. I'm like, dude, dude, this is the hat for you. You Believe me. Just wear this to school. It's yeah. going to change your life. Old Biff hated young Biff. <laughs> said, I'm going to ruin this guy's sex life from fourth grade on. All right. If you have any feedback for us, cocoonsofhor at gmail.com. And of course, we would love it if you tried it. iTunes review, we will read those uh, as they are posted. <laughs> A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. 
This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away in timeline order from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>